For most allocators, they can manage the risk of a 1% down move every week. They'll eventually get it into their heads that the market's trending down. What they cannot cope with is a sudden down move, a Volmageddon, Feb 2018 type move, or a early phases of COVID type move. That's what they cannot tolerate because it happens so quickly, they don't have time to sit around a committee, hash out ideas, do everything in a structured way and react appropriately. So that's where they need the protection. And so that's really one important goal that I think um, you yourself have identified in the various things you run. The need for um, a threshold on losses that allows you to do everything else that you do in your portfolio. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Jason Buck, to host a sequence of in-depth conversations on the topic of volatility. In today's world, the concept of volatility has moved to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin or survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized investors and the processes they follow to harness their returns in order to make all of us better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Jason Buck. Thank you, Niels, for the introduction. My special guest today is Hari Krishnan from SCT Capital. Hari is an options trading expert and has written two books, The Second Leg Down and Market Tremors, which is soon to be published. Second Leg Down is one of my favorite books of all time. Highly recommend it. Hari, I'm going to start off with a simple question, which actually is probably the hardest question. Why should somebody include volatility or tail risk into their portfolio? Well, thanks for having me, Jason. And a big shout out to Niels. I've known Niels for years, and it's great to be on his show. Having said that, there are a bunch of reasons, and I'll just give you three. The first reason is that permanent losses can be catastrophic for investors. If you lose 50% of your entire portfolio in a year, say, you need to double it to just, just to get back to even. So compounding is a big issue there. Another reason to employ hedges or tail hedges is that they kind of act like an ATM in a crisis. They're a source of liquidity. If the tail hedges are set correctly, and if the market shanks, you now have a large amount of profit in a sub-portfolio of your book that you can then put to work in other areas, or just sit back and enjoy the ride as other people are um, sadly suffering. So uh, that's the second reason. The final reason is psychological, in my view, final main reason. I like to talk about taking a walk around the block. Many of us have iron stomachs, but when it comes to money and money being lost quickly, it's hard to make clear decisions. And having a hedge on that puts a floor on your assets is a way to make good decisions under pressure. That's phenomenal. I'm going to actually steal all three of those from you because that was that was the perfectly yeah. put. <laughs> okay. You, you said, you know, catastrophe insurance, which I think is interesting too, is that we're talking about volatility in this series. And actually the, the original volatility trade was like tail risk hedging. Now it's come very sexy to trade VIX or, or VIX futures instruments, and people think about volatility that way, or they call it long volatility. Another way to look at long volatility is trading you know, both the left and the right tails, buying both puts and calls. But I want to start off 
pretty simply, and then we'll kind of build up through there going through the research in both of your books. But historically, if somebody wants to just tail risk their portfolio during a risk on cycle, a lot of times people maybe start with doing it themselves and they'll, they'll start off with just rolling puts a certain percentage out of the money and they'll do a fixed spend. And so that has a pros and cons, right? Like you have, you know, some insurance is better than no insurance, but when you're using fixed spend, you're not really targeting it to your equity beta. And so therefore you may not be getting the coverage you're looking for when that sell-off comes. But I'm wondering like, how do you think about, you know, in general, should you just be buying and rolling puts at a certain percentage out of the money to, to provide that insurance or that sleep at night for you? Or how would you do it during a, a risk on cycle if we were just looking at a very simplistic trade? Well, if I had to put it on the back of an envelope or on the back of a postcard, I'd say there are two features of a good hedge. One is that it doesn't cost too much. And the other that it has a punchy payout, a highly convex payout. Options guys like to call that lambda for leverage. So maximizing leverage is important. And I think rolling put structures don't necessarily achieve that. And the reason they don't is, one reason is they're very path dependent. If the market rallies and then collapses, kind of in an inverted V shape, you might not get any protection out of the put because too much time has burned off uh, before the put really would come into play. So that's one issue. Uh, Another thing is that rolling puts is insensitive to the cost of insurance, basically. And the cost of insurance varies over time. So it's important to uh, take that into account when hedging. And, you know, there are a lot of tricks to the trade. Even if you have a fixed premium outlay strategy, it's very important to find pockets of opportunity. I'm not a baseball guy, but I'll give you a baseball analogy, which is kind of hit the ball where people aren't standing. And that applies to hedging as well, because you want to be buying protection in areas where people are not really focused. And one of the things I talked about in the first book was the idea that a lot of institutions like to hedge plausible downside scenarios. So they'll sit around a room and say, oh, uh, the 10% one month drawdown is about as bad as it's going to get. So we're going to hedge against that. And so they go out and buy 10% out of the money puts. And that doesn't succeed on a number of levels. The first thing is that they're entering a crowded trade. And the second thing is that if you buy a 10% out of the money put, you're not necessarily putting a floor on your losses 10% out. You're just starting to make money at an accelerating rate down there. So it's not a very precise trade relative to the view. And it also tends to be a crowded trade. And so avoiding groupthink in hedging is pretty important too. So that's what I was alluding to. It's it's very easy a lot of times to put on these trades, but if you're not attenuating to the vol surfaces or where the crowded trades are, you can be overspending on that premium. And especially if you're if there's uh, large firms that are rolling in a systematic way, the market makers and the rest of the the market players are looking to take advantage of that. And especially, what do you think about? A lot of times people want like that full coverage, but if you're looking at negative ten percent or closer to the money is that bleed way too high to necessarily get the compounding effect of reducing that volatility tax? It depends what the market's giving you. So I'll just talk about the state of the world today, which is early to mid-September 2021. Longer dated insurance is very expensive. Shorter dated insurance is relatively at least cheap. So if you're not insuring over very long horizons, you can get a ton of punchiness at low cost with options that are not too far out of the money, at least in percentage terms. So it depends on what the market's giving you. There are ways to do it. There are downsides to any hedge you might put on. 
Uh, Short-dated hedges tend to burn off quickly. Longer-dated hedges hold on a bit more. But there are ways to get closer to at the money at low cost. Can you kind of talk about those trade-offs between if you're, you know, nearer in time, you got that, you have a long gamma profile. If you go out farther in time, you have a long vega profile. Can you kind of talk about what those Greeks are and what the differences are there? Yeah, vega, making money on vega is making money on sentiments. If investors are complacent and they suddenly get scared, you can make money on vega. And the more scared they get, the more the options that you own will reprice in your favor. Gamma is a bit different because it's more related to what actually happens to the price. So if I think of like a trend follower, and that's Niels's wheelhouse, trend followers are more long gamma than Vega. They're trying to make money on outsized moves in one direction or another. That's the province of short-dated options. Longer-dated options are based more on changes in sentiments. So you're not even necessarily trading the price directly. You're trading changes in fear or changes in greed. So uh, that's the difference. And Vega is a thorny concept to many people who don't trade options. Implied volatility is a thorny concept because it really is a function of the market's collective angst as it progresses over time. Great. And so we're talking about putting on these put option trades, for example, and we're looking at looking at the vol surface, you know, how, what's our tenors? How, do, how close do we want to be in time? How far away? So we're, we're figuring that out. But then the next question is, they have a, an expiry, they have theta, they have time decay. So how do you think about rolling options in general? Because that's the, that's, that's the start where we get into the trickiness of having on options trades. Yeah, there are trade-offs to that. That's a really good question. Short-dated options are kind of good and bad from a rolling standpoint. They're bad because they burn off in percentage terms pretty quickly. So every day that goes by, a, an option with a month to go will lose more value than an option with a year to go, an equivalent option. But the good thing about it is if the market is melting up, you can keep resetting your hedges as your options burn off. So yes, you have a lot of 100% losers, but you can reload at more aggressive strikes, which gives you a little bit more control over how you're going to make money if the market rushes up and then crashes down. You'll do better with short-dated stuff that way. The long-dated space is good from other from another standpoint, which is that you've kind of stripped out the time component a little bit and... You don't need to worry about delta hedging the position or being very dynamic. You can sit back, put the options in the closet if you think you bought them cheap. And then if something big happens, you can open the closet door and see, see how you did. And so it's good as kind of a longer term value play on risk. Except for the, the trade-off would be to the longer data options, you have drift risk, right? If you put on the trade, the market in your, let's say negative 20% out of the money is where you have your attachment point and the market drifts up 30% and then sells off 30%, you're not going to get much kicker out of those, those longer dated options. Is that fair? That's very fair. And the other thing to say is that in regime like the one we're in now, where interest rates are close to zero and dividend yields are higher than interest rates, every day that nothing happens, your puts are going further out of the money, not only in terms of time decay, but also in terms of what's happening to the forward price. So the forward is drifting up over time away from your insurance. And that's another issue that needs to be factored in. Again, I don't want to get too fancy too quickly, so please dive in. <laughs> I was just thinking if we're thinking about that, a vanilla rolling trade in general is like a, a good way to think about it is if you are buying three month options and then you're rolling every month, 
you're trying to limit some of that theta or time decay. So that's a way of doing it. But like, as you alluded to, there's, there's trade-offs to that. And there's never a perfect time horizon. Like you're not going to give us a set it and forget it time horizon on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the market's at 4,500 and you buy a one-year put at 3,500 and it goes to 5,500, you're out of luck because the put's not got any power left, really. It would take a very large move to put it back into play. Whereas, as I said, if you buy shorter dated stuff, you buy something at 4,200 and then that expires and the market's at 4,800, then you buy another one, another set at 4,500 and you just keep rolling up so that you're making money on basically any meaningful down move. You don't need a 50% down move after a 30% up move to be in the money. You only need one shock and then you recover all the money you spent over years given sufficient size based on a shorter dated hedge. But we're already touching on probably the reason why people hate tail risk insurance is because it's a negative line item, right? If every month you're rolling puts and you're just burning all of that premium, people hate looking at that line item. But like what you just said, you can make all of that money back in one month that you've been burning for a year and it's reducing that portfolio volatility tax and that's your insurance to be able to sleep at night. Is that fair? Yeah, we're all in the debt of Nassim Taleb a bit for popularizing this concept because many of us knew about it. And we find it very painful talking to clients after losing money week after week after week because they viewed it as a line item, just as an explicit cost. It took a pretty sophisticated client base to view it otherwise. And I think over the years, people are more wise to this idea that this is playing a role in a bigger portfolio. It's providing leverage to the downside that you need if you're going to take risk on the other side. And... Uh, it takes a special sort of person to do this too. Many of us who do run long vol stuff, we tend to rise a lot or go on the air a lot, speak a lot. <laughs> Maybe we're egotists, but we also do it because we need to do things of value that don't involve being too interfering with the portfolios we're running. You have to be able to wear those small losses. We're getting to the point now. So that we, we have these positions on, we're thinking about rolling these positions. Now let's talk about the fun stuff, which actually ends up being the hardest part of the portfolio, is you have all this put protection on and you're going through the risk on cycle and all of a sudden a risk off event happens. The market just shanks off 20, 30%. And so now you, you're getting that Vega and Gamma kicker. You've got all this insurance, you're excited. But then the question is, what are your monetization heuristics? There, This is where all the nuance comes in. It's like, because if you just take all that protection off, what if there's another leg down after that? Are you selling it at the peak? Do, is it going to run, you know, is Vega going to increase twice as much from here? If you take that protection off and, and bank that those profits, are you left naked without protection from here on down? I mean, these are the real nuances is actually the monetization heuristics of this trade and all the trade-offs with those monetizations. How do you think about those? Well, I have some buddies and they used to, we used to sit down and they'd say, oh, your job's pretty easy. You're a hedger, right? And I'd say, yeah, some of the time. <laughs> and then they would say, well, Hedging is easy because you don't have to time the entry points. And it's true that in a bull market, in a quiet market, you don't need to be too sensitive to timing. You can load up and you don't have to worry about the day or the exact price level you put it on. But the trouble is exit. Exiting or monetizing, as you put it, does require timing. And as you pointed out, the standard approach has been to say, oh, enough is enough. The market sold off enough. I'm out. I'm willing to be exposed now. And I've monetized some gains on the hedges and I don't think it's going to get any worse. So let me put that money back into the market. Now, that's very risky. 
that's a very risky strategy because you can never tell when the end of a sell-off is complete. It's very hard to tell. And it's true the reversals tend to be face-ripping, but there are lots of big jaggedy down moves in severe bear markets. Even February and March of 2020 had a real sawtoothed price action where the market could have stopped at 8% down. It could have stopped at 15% down. It could have stopped at 25% down, but it kept going. And so there were waves of liquidations and rebalancing. So in my view, the right approach isn't to say, oh, the sell-off is over, because then you're entering the domain of market timing, which isn't really what hedges should do. A better strategy is to say, oh, I've done really well on this hedge. Now the implied volatility, the premium on the options I've bought, that's pretty expensive now. So why don't I monetize that hedge and go into another hedge, which might be a bit cheaper. Now, that can mean rolling the strikes down. I don't think that's the best solution because then you wind up paying up for out-of-the-money insurance, which people are begging to have on at that point. A better strategy is to sort of move into spreads of various types, put spreads, or change the maturity of the options you buy. There's a whole host of things you can do, but in the book, in the second leg down, the idea was basically find the best hedge for the state of the world now and adapt your hedges over time. Don't go straight to cash unless the client is happy with taking on the risk. Instead, rotate from one type of hedge into a different type of hedge so that you're keeping costs down, but keeping the protection going. I wonder, my favorite part about Second Leg Down is you give a full suite of tools in the toolkit, so people should definitely read the book. But my favorite part is actually the, the sombrero trade and, and using oh, yeah, yeah. ratio backspreads. So can you describe what a sombrero trade is? I think people really call it a put slingshot or a call slingshot. I think a sombrero is pretty, showed my lack of knowledge, but that's when you're betting that the market is overestimating the odds of a medium-sized down move, but underestimating the odds or the potential impacts of a mega move. So as I mentioned earlier, lots of people hedge against plausible downside scenarios, 5% down in a month, 10% down in a month, whatever. Now, the trouble is that those hedges tend to be expensive. And what we've seen increasingly in markets is the tendency for markets to drift up more persistently than they used to and really crash down, sort of have an air pocket move down very suddenly, often from a low level of risk. And so what you get is a situation where moderate down moves are probably rarer than the options market is pricing. Big down moves, at least until recently, at least until the uh, land grab for tail insurance, tends to be fairly priced or maybe even cheap. And so what you can do is you can sell a little bit of insurance that's 5% out and buy a whole heck of a lot of insurance that's 10% out, let's say. And basically you wind up with a situation where if the market flatlines or goes up, you only lose a tiny bit. If it really explodes to the downside, you make it big. And the risk of the trade, the implied cost of the trade is a gradual trend down. Now, that's the bet that investors need to make. And my view is that for most allocators, they can manage the risk of a 1% down move every week. They'll eventually get it into their heads that the market's trending down. What they cannot cope with is a sudden down move, a Volmageddon, Feb 2018-type move, or a early phases of COVID-type move. That's what they cannot tolerate because it happens so quickly, they don't have time to sit around a committee hash out ideas, do everything in a structured way and react appropriately. So that's where they need the protection. And so that's really one 
important goal that I think um, you yourself have identified in the various things you run. The need for um, a threshold on losses that allows you to do everything else that you do in your portfolio. So there is a role for that. Market makers have known this for a long time, which is never be net short the wings, never take a net short position in very far out of the money options, because they're essentially unhedgeable until they really come into play. And the gamma risk is so big then that it's not worth having them on your books. You're not collecting enough premium. And that's the cost of doing business, buying and selling in normal situations and buying the wings. And to me, I don't care if uh, sombrero is not the preferred nomenclature. I think it's so evocative yeah. that you should use it anyway. And because it represents yeah. what the what the P&L of that trade looks like, because and to, to kind of point it out, what you're saying is if you were selling five, one one put at 5% down, you might be buying two or three puts at, at 10% down, but you're doing the same on the call side. And that's what creates the the sombrero effect of the P&L. But what, what really I really want to get into about that is what you talk about in your book is what happens when risk gets repriced. And this is what's so fascinating to me is if you're putting on trades and when you initiate the trade, you're going to screen for your P&L and you're going to run shock tests. And everybody worries about maybe getting pinned risk to your sold put. As you said, if you drift down, you might get pinned to that sold put. But your argument has always been, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if we have a violent down move, risk gets repriced. And there's almost no kind of uh, negative part of that P&L that it literally shifts completely. The curve shifts completely and you almost have almost positive P&L if you have a violent sell-off. And that's when risk literally gets repriced. So it's not even thinking about, are these options perfectly priced? Are they expensive or cheap? It's a totally different environment. It's a, it's a literal phase shift where risk gets completely repriced. Yeah, lots of things happen in a fear, fearful market. One thing is that volatility explodes. But not only does that increase the price of far out of the money options, but it also makes them closer to at the money. Because when volatility explodes, effectively all the strikes that were a mile away are now close and they're in play and people are worried about them and they have to hedge against them. So it's not as though you shock your portfolio relative to price moves and then you shock it relative to changes in risk. Changes in risk are going to have a material impact on the delta or the relative closeness of that insurance, it actually brings it into play more rapidly than a, an isolated shock would suggest. And that's really interesting to me, the fact that options just grow beyond all expected proportion, well, beyond what people would generally expect based on the feedback between the distance of a strike to where the market's at now and the fear level in the market. And, uh, you know, a lot of short sellers used to say or used to fight against the notion that short selling is tough because losing positions grow, whereas winning positions shrink. Well, imagine selling volatility, which is less profitable than it has been for years. Not only do your losing positions grow, they grow non-linearly. They explode against you. So they're unmanageable. They're effectively unmanageable. And uh, being on the other side of that can be very attractive. I think like what you said about closing the distance between the strikes is like nothing's set in stone. It makes me think about even uh, trading time, right? We all think about trading time as just Kronos, like the clock ticks on. But yeah. when things get really violent or vol picks up, it's more Kairos, right? It's the opportune moment, like time changes and moves much faster. So even on your P&L, you may have a large distance between strikes, but it's like the distance between strikes expands and contracts based on, you know, the, the violence in the market, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, time is 
highly variable in markets. We've been in a market phase, at least for equities and things and rates. Time is moving. Nothing's happening, basically. It's stretched <laughs> beyond all recognition, right? Yeah, we could go into that. I mean, that's part of the concept of the second book, but, but yeah. I'll lay off that for now. No, you, you gave me a perfect segue. We're going to transition in the second book, and this is going to be part of the ongoing conversation. But I thought now is the time to kind of hit on, there was this well-known debate on Twitter between Nassim Taleb and Cliff Asnes <laughs> okay. after March of 2020, right? Where they're talking about, you know, tail risk protection versus trend following. And I think this is a great forum to talk about this a little bit is like you alluded to earlier, is like if the market's trending down slowly, managers can handle that, especially trend-following managers. The problem is sure. when the violent sell-offs come kind of out of nowhere, you a lot of times if you're a longer-term trend follower, you might be on the wrong side of that trend. So it's nice to have some tail risk protection to, like you said, you can, you can get a bunch of convex cash on the books that then you can redeploy into your trend strategies that helps you ride out that that move as it, as it increases over time. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Like if I'm constructing a portfolio, I may have a lot of equity beta and then I may have some trend following, but the transition between the two is usually very violent. So you need that structurally negatively correlated asset class of puts. Oh yeah, that's well said. Um, trend following for me is a play on the leverage cycle, especially outside of say equities. If you think of physical commodities and things, stuff that, that bigger trend followers don't trade that much, but which have historically played a big role. They're a play on the leverage cycle. So when speculators are doing well, they have margin released as cash. So they basically can put more into the same trade. And so exaggerated trends in many markets are a function of leverage. And trend followers exploit that. And the good thing about trend following, in my view, is that it explicitly allows this leverage play to be expressed as a diversifier. I didn't say it very well, but the idea is that outsized moves that would be considered fundamentally highly unlikely, whatever fundamentally means, can and do occur, especially in the presence of leverage, and trend followers make money on that. And that's great, and it's a great diversifier. But as you pointed out, trend following does have the limitation of being exposed, at least in certain markets, to explosive moves from a low volatility base. So, you know, the Volmageddon was a good case. I think the VIX was trading at about 15.6 at the close on the day before the Volmageddon, when it just exploded. And things like that have occurred a lot more often recently. I mean, I did a very preliminary study which said, um, let's assume the VIX is below 20. And then let's allow the passage of five days of time forward. How often did the VIX jump by more than 10 points over the next five days? And it essentially never occurred before 2009. Since 2009, we've had eight to 10 occurrences of the VIX over a five-day period going up by more than 10 points from a base below 20. What that suggests to me is that there are more explosions involved than there used to be. It may mean that there's a bit less liquidity than people think in the markets, but there are another, a bunch of other factors that are driving this as well. And that's something that I'm talking about in the book, yeah. in the second book. Once again, you're, you're segueing me perfectly as a, as a pro that you are, you know, thinking about illiquidity oh. and these explosive movements and volatility. It's a hotly debated topic of whether you can time tail risk or if you can time market sell-offs. A lot of people fall on either side of the debate, but you had the courage to really weigh in this with, with the perfectly titled market tremors. So 
but to be very more specific about it, you're thinking about what are the tremors that may lead to a market sell-off, but not that it's going to guarantee it. It's just giving me a higher probability given the market structure that you're kind of seeing in the current environment. Is that a fair way of saying it? It's more about the probabilistic things that you're looking at may add up to a, a risk-off environment being around the corner? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the book is basically about how to take a zombie market. So we've been in zombie markets for a long time. Those markets are characterized by central bank stimulus, QE, steady inflows into passive vehicles, increasing prevalence of momentum-based strategies. They might not be trend followers, but other things as well. And in all of those things, we've had sticky low volatility in many markets. And, you know, you'd like to buy tail risk in that environment because many of us think that this is unsustainable. And the real risk is being disguised or hidden or camouflaged by all of these forces. New players in the market, growth of passive, and endless QE. But the trouble with this is that historically, and even now, low volatility periods tend to be followed by low volatility periods. There's persistence in calmness as a rule. And it's not necessarily as though if it's been, if we've had low volatility for the past month, the next month is more likely to be high vol. In fact, persistence is pretty common. And I give an analogy in the book to waiting times. If you have a buddy and he's five minutes late, the odds that he'll come in the next five minutes are probably higher than if he's two hours late. Because it's not necessarily as though every time nothing happens, it makes something more likely to happen around the quarter. Now, this is not an exact analogy. I do believe the pressures build up over time and the risk of extreme events does grow over time. But for me, the goal in the book is to say, how can we distinguish between black swans, which are inherently unpredictable, Taleb style, and our form of gray swans? No timing here, but what are the preconditions for a major sell-off, a major unwinding, a major rebalancing? And the goal in the book is to convert some events that people have called black swans, like the Volmageddon and so on, into predict somewhat predictable events, if not in time, but based on excessive overzealous positioning and too much leverage that had to come out. So the book is about whales. It's about market whales. And let me give you one example there. Uh, imagine that there is a whale in the market and the market is some market. It's trading at 100 and the whale has a mega stop order to sell at 95. Okay. Um, if there's a random shock and the market gets around 96 or 95.5 and everyone knows that the whale is in there with a sell order, whether it's explicit or not, they will be incentivized to push the price down to 95. And from there, it will explode down well below 95 to 92, 91, maybe lower all of a sudden. And you'll see what seemed to be a tail event because it wasn't expressed in terms of realized risk, but it's in there. It's in the positioning risk. And so identifying these whales, figuring out what their patterns of behavior are, and also estimating what the impact of their forced rebalancing might be in the event of a random shock of medium size gives you an edge. And so I'm looking at these whales and I'm trying to classify them and I'm trying to figure out how big they are, how they act, and how they will respond to a random shock. And if they do, what the impact of that will be. And I should make the comment that this is co-authored with Ash Bennington of Real Vision, so I don't want to undercut him in all of this. And so that's what the book is about. And it basically 
boils down to a small category of whales. The guys or the entities that keep coming back and destroying the network as we know it. That includes options market makers. They've hit the press a lot recently, both as a function of the meme stock explosions, you know, GameStop and so on, and also in terms of exaggerating sell-offs, say in 2020, early 2020. Another category of these players are central banks, the elephants in the room. They're always big, but when they act at the margins, they either have the potential to amplify gains in risky assets or cause sudden down moves if they change course. A third category is ETFs and the various people who support them. I can go into that. And the final category is a little bit more harder to measure, but it includes things like volatility control funds, trend followers, risk parity funds, and so on. All of them have programmatic ways, or at least on average have programmatic ways to rebalance according to changes in trend and changes in realized risk. These entities, especially vol control, can also have destabilizing impacts on the market. And my final comment there, because I'm hogging the time a bit, is this. It seems like people really haven't learned from portfolio insurance in the portfolio insurance crisis in the 80s, because they're doing many people, including, I'll say it in a low voice, Cliff Asnes, is doing many things that are highly reminiscent of exactly that. Now, I don't say that he's wrong to do that, because this is a scalable solution that makes academic sense. But in my view, if it becomes too successful, it's inherently destabilizing. And someone told me about Goodhart's law, which basically says that if a measurement becomes a target, it can be destabilizing. That's basically what's happening here. So I think the classic example was there's a boss at a call center and he figures out that whenever they do more calls, when more calls are handled, revenues tend to go up. So he goes to his employees and says, well, he or she says, do as many calls as you humanly can. And then the call quality goes down and the business suffers as a result because something that was correlated with revenue is now becoming a target and destroying the business inherently. And this is the same problem. The whole idea of creating these huge scalable products with simple, telegraphed, easy to understand rules that anyone can replicate is bound to fail if it becomes successful, if it becomes sufficiently successful. So I'm looking for those setups and I'm trying to figure out where are these prevalent and what will happen if these strategies become too large and there's just a garden variety random shock that forces them into action. So that's what the second book's about. And so like you said, it's Goddard's Law or the Cobra Effect. And it's like, uh, yeah. it's like if you're buying hurricane insurance, you buying hurricane insurance doesn't lead to a prevalence of more hurricanes. But as soon as volatility actually becomes a player on the field, you know, then we can have these perverse incentive and feedback loops with volatility. So it, it's, it's a weird thing that's not correlated to other forms of insurance in a way. And I think that we're going to unpack each one of these whales in a little bit more depth. We're not picking on anyone in particular. It's just pointing out no, kind of like no. the, the pros and cons. So let's talk about, we'll talk about a little bit of the con sides of what these different whales do. But what's interesting is you're not necessarily predicting when a crash is going to happen. You're just saying, here's an inflection point. If we if we see a sell-off, let's say a 5% here, I see a whale positioned around this 5%. So if we break through that barrier, it's going to lead to a, an acceleration of that cascade. So it's not necessarily predicting crashes. It's just saying, if we see any sort of sell-off in this range, there's enough positioning here where if we break through that range, we're going to see a, a, an acceleration and maybe an air pocket there. Exactly. 
And one of those is like, I, I think about March of 2020, for an example, is, you know, a lot of people think it's, you know, COVID related, whatever. A lot of other people would say that's more of a VAR event. And this is an example of an inflection point where once the sell-off started, it increased because there was a lot of degrossing or deleveraging of books. And we'll get into actually some of those whales and how they would affect it, especially like vol targeting, et cetera. You just had a lot of people running for the exits at the same time, trying to degross or delever their books that were levered up because of a very complacent risk on cycle. So is that kind of how you think about March of 2020 or in this kind of sense of like you're looking for those inflection points like that that lead to a, a cascade of liquidations? Yes, I try to do it in the most precise way I could in the book where I could actually calculate things, which made it difficult to involve various strategies like vol control because different vol control funds use slightly different inputs and so on. And it's hard to measure the exact size. So that's that's the province of people like Charlie McGillicott at uh, Nomura and so on. Sorry if I mispronounced his name. But what I was looking at mainly was dealer exposure uh, or options market maker exposure at the time. And what we know about options market makers and things like the S&P is that given the proliferation of products where collar equity positions, which buy puts to create a floor on losses and sell calls to create a surrogate for income in a zero interest rate world, dealers have the opposite position. So dealers don't intercept every trade that goes through the market, but they do intercept the majority of them, the vast majority. And often they're unable to offset the trades because the flow is one way. And so they wind up with the reverse position where they're short puts and long calls. Now, this is a situation that's been analyzed by a bunch of people, including the legendary squeeze metrics guys. But um, the idea there is that if dealers are long calls and short puts, they have to hedge by trading the underlying. So they have to buy and sell the S&P futures to hedge the exposure in that options position. So if the market's rallying without knowing the details or without worrying about the details, they have to sell rallies and buy sell-offs. So many sell-offs are bought, many rallies are sold. That compresses volatility artificially. It has nothing to do with the market's view on risk. It's simply dealers covering their exposure. They're trying to monetize gains from the price action of the index to offset the position they're holding. Conversely, if the market really shanks, dealers have the reverse problem. They're short gamma, which means they have to sell sell-offs and buy rallies. That causes exaggerated moves. And so what you see is that when the market trends down enough, the puts that the dealers are short suddenly come into play. And so by virtue of their hedging activity, they're not taking a view, at least in the, in the basic version of this, they're just selling sell-offs and buying rallies. So you see exaggerated intraday moves purely caused by dealer exposure. And, the, and that exposure is measurable. If you make certain assumptions about uh, how much of the open interest is not crossed between customers, which the dealers are holding, how much the dealers are holding, you can say how much they'll have to hedge. And you're looking at situations where they may have to buy or sell a significant percentage of the open interest in the front month futures, which is going to have massive price impact. I think some of the academic research shows that a 1% order will result in a 5% move, something like that. So there's a multiplier of five, whatever. So if things get dicey on the downside, dealers have to really sell aggressively. Conversely, if someone comes in and decides to buy, dealers have to buy back their shorts. So that causes exaggerated moves to the upside. That's all measurable. 
And it is what was behind the meme stock syndrome as well, which others have spoken about better than I can perhaps. But basically a lot of customers were long, deep out of the money call options on things like GameStop or uh, AMC and so on. And so dealers were short. And when dealers are short an option, they have to buy rallies and sell sell-offs. And so as the market ratcheted up, these investors who hadn't put that much money in were now in a highly levered position, which was loading up in their favor, forcing dealers to scramble to hedge their, against their losses, pushing the price up even more. And so the acceleration, the, these right tail effects that you spoke about in the beginning, basically, at least largely a function of dealer hedging. And uh, that's a major agent-based or network-based problem that has nothing to do with fundamentals, has nothing to do on what the insiders on the street know or don't know. It's not an information-based flow. It's a positioning-based flow. And that's it, really. I mean, I'm looking at positioning very heavily in the book because I think positioning and leverage are the two main challenges of the modern markets. And that's a big thing. Mike Green has spoken a lot about this on the passive investing side. And I have been doing a little bit of work with him recently. And the idea is that if there's an inflow to passive, there will be a buy. There's an automatic buy order that comes into play. Whereas if active managers get an inflow in an expensive market, they may not buy as much, if at all. So you get stronger momentum effects if passive is increasing its market share because simply because they're receiving inflows and those flows are being deployed directly with virtually zero cash balance. So that sort of effect may indeed be pushing the drift higher in markets like the S&P and various equity indices. It may even be doing it in fixed income, though perhaps to a lesser degree. And so these sorts of effects are really important because they're altering the distribution of returns far, far away from what the classical economists would have said. You know, there's no normal distribution. There's not even a modification of the normal distribution because the distribution can be altered by the behavior of a few whales in the network. And I've heard you say it before, is the best part of trading options is that you can take advantage of the full distribution of returns? Yeah, that's, that's one of the goals. I mean, if you can find a mismatch between what the market thinks the probability of something is and what you think it is, you can target that. Whereas if you're just buying or selling, yes, you'll make money if you're on the right side of the trade, but you're unable to apply the same amount of precision to your best. So that's, that's a big thing. Now, before I go off the rails here, my goal, I'm pretty wishy-washy about this, but my goal was not to say Cliff Asnes is wrong. He's running a business that he wants to scale. Naturally, I'm on the Taleb side, but I cannot say that I would act entirely differently if I were in his position, which is to scale an asset base, which is the way that banks and large asset managers think of things. That's his business. It's, it's a good business. It's just not the business I'm in. Yeah, I, I well... I would say we're fortunately unfortunate that we're not running hundreds of billions of dollars because that's a that's a different high class problem. But I want to touch on, on yes. several points you brought up, starting with passive. Another part of the passive complex of issues is that inelasticity of markets when passive is involved. You know, some more papers have come out recently for every dollar that goes into passive, they think it affects markets by five dollars. Other people said nine. I think Mike's most recent research was like sixteen to seventeen dollars. What do you think about like that the inelasticity of markets that passive creates for those flows? I mean, the best, my best way to look at this is by running a simulation. And the simulation that I've been trying to run has the following form. 
Flows are based on performance as well. So let's say that there's a pool of active plus passive and markets have been trending up. Equity markets, let's say. One can expect that equity markets will receive net inflows, active plus passive. Now, what you get, though, is a situation where passive is getting an increasing sub-allocation or an increasing relative allocation to that flow, which implies that if markets sell off a bit, passive is still buying. They're still getting inflows. If markets go up, passive is buying a loss, and it's creating an exaggerated effect on price moves because if passive starts buying, then the trend increases, which then feeds back into the flow performance dynamics. So you have this feedback loop between passive getting more money, passive allocating without regard to valuation, markets trending up, trends increasing, flows coming in, passive getting the lion's share of the flow, passive buying mechanically, and so on and so forth. Now, one thing that's interesting about this dynamic is that if the way I'm thinking about these simulations is correct, as pa- let's suppose passive gets to 90 or 95% or whatever of the total mix, not that it's even close to that, maybe it's at 40% now, but if it gets to a high enough number, passive will not move the dial because it's already receiving the lion's share of inflow. So I would expect the dynamics would be more symmetric, where if there's a sell-off, they're selling in equal size to if there's a rally, and the trend breaks at some point. So if passive gets too big, if passive gets big enough, you'll see an acceleration, potential acceleration in prices going up. But once passive gets really big, that relationship will break. So there are actually two breakpoints, as I see it, in the uh passive, active, relative market share uh, debates. We're, we're below the first one, so that's the more interesting one now. And then I want to go back to what you were saying about market makers, and you referenced squeeze metrics and the GEX index, and nothing's perfect, Gex. and, and squeeze, squeeze metrics points this out. It's like, these are just looking at dealer positioning in exchange-traded markets, right? But anything OTC or dark pools, they, you don't have access to. So a lot of flow traders we work with are trying to build their own models that are incorporating a lot of different data points for where the flows are for these inflection points like you discussed. And so part of that too is um, you have all these over-the-counter structured products that are coming out of Asia, Europe, and now are starting in America where they're basically selling to the retail client, hey, here's a you're looking for yield, here's a 5 to 8% yield. But the downside is if if the market sells off 30%, you get you you get allocated that put. And now you're, you know, you have to lose now, now you're at a 70% nav position on the on the equity beta that you are getting an income from. And so what that does for those banks that are selling that, it gives them a, a different form of kind of hedging than the than the market maker would. There's a there's an acceleration to the downside, but as soon as you hit that attachment point, they're free and clear. So they take off their position. So there's almost like a a hump to their acceleration, right? They're, they have to cover the position as it's selling off, selling off, they're adding more and more exposure. And then as they're getting to that attachment point, they're taking off that exposure. So that's another wrinkle in the system when you're trying to figure out where all the different dealer or bank positioning is. And I'm curious that like how you think about that is like, you have the exchange traded position that you would get from like the GEX, but you kind of have to overlay that because there may be a, a, a larger positions in the OTC markets. Yeah, that's a great point. In the book, I don't really touch on that because it's hard to model. It requires something more internal or proprietary to do it. I actually don't do a lot of that right now. I think there are teams that do it better than I do, but it is very significant. And you need good bank relationships to do this, to do this properly. It's not going to be information that you can just read in some magazine. So you really need good bank relationships. I think the people who can do it probably have a lot of prop trading connections, networks, 
And that is an edge that they have that I do not possess. So um, more power to them. But that's a pretty complex problem. And I think the goal in that is just to figure out what the big structured products are. You don't need to worry about everything, but what's driving the market. And then looking at the volatility surface, looking at the relative prices of options to say, is that priced in? To what extent is that priced in? If it's fully priced in, fine. You don't need the GEX. You don't need that knowledge because it's already baked into the prices of options. If it isn't fully priced in, which I found for the GEX a little bit, then there's added value that can be exploited there in terms of trading options. So yes, if you know what structured products are being delivered, you know that the banks are hedging with the reverse positions, perhaps, or with, uh, sorry, with the same position. So you have a feeling as to uh, where the pressure points are in the market. That's a really good problem. It's a really hard problem. I'm sure you could spend a career doing that. And uh, I won't go further. Yeah. It makes me think about a lot of times people always, I see them ask those flow specialists, where can I look for that positioning? Like, is there a free tool online? And I'm always thinking, yeah, it's 20 years of experience of building relationships and having Bloomberg chats, right? Like there's there's some proprietary yeah. information and and knowledge base, some tacit knowledge base there. But I want to touch on, on one of your other whales that you referenced is central banks or QE. You know, what we hear often is why would I buy put protection if the central bank is my put protection, right? And is that a Malthusian bargain is like, it works until it doesn't work. And then that leads to a crazy cascade. Yeah, I mean, I've had a hard time wrapping my arms around that one. The way I think about it is that you, you should tailor your portfolio to what you believe you can know on the one hand, and also uh, your view as to how strong the Fed put is, because it's a kind of a nuanced thing. How strong is the Fed put? Is it a floor on everything risky? Does it put a hard floor on credit and equity? Does it only put a hard floor on credits? At least up to now, outside of Japan, the major central banks haven't really gone in and bought equity ECFs. Or is it just no floor at all? It's just a self-perpetuating belief that may fail one day. Maybe it's subject to exogenous risks that are hard to measure, like uh, changes in government, changes in the view of the people with regard to what central banks can or should be doing. Just a change in the collective zeitgeist of, of, of what central banks should be, can and should be delivering. For each of those, there's a different type of hedge you can use. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about that. Suppose that you thought that the Fed put was flimsy. If you did think that and you're an options trader or you're a hedger, credit hedges look pretty cheap. They really do. Credit hedges are now priced below 2019 levels in many cases, and you can buy tranches of credit, which are extremely cheap. I think the investment grade side, which did blow out in 2020, is super cheap. And even the high yield side is really cheap. It's a matter of debate as to which one is cheaper in relative terms. But even if you don't look into CDS, into swaps, you look into ETFs, you'll still see relative cheapness in the HYG or the JNK ETFs in terms of the price of insurance. If you do believe that credit will be backstopped, as it was in April of 2020, then it's a harder question because equity insurance is more expensive, but it does have several edges or advantages. One of them is that equity hedges are more liquid, they're more transparent, they're more easily priced, they're more easily monetized. They can be rolled more easily. There's more variation in what you can do. You're not subject to a bank's pricing setup as you might be for a uh, bank-created structured product, let's say. So um, 
in that case, you know, if you do, if you do believe that there's a floor on credit, there's still a lot of equity hedges you can put on. But my view is that the Fed put is not solid. It isn't solid. It's been more of a self-perpetuating belief system where it is true historically that when the Fed has expanded its assets or the assets on its balance sheet by more than 10% over a three-month period, typically credit spreads have contracted over the next six months. Typically, equities have gone up over the next six months and so on. But you could argue that a lot of that is just mean reversion. When credit spreads blow out, they tend to come back in. That's been historically the case. So it's hard to disaggregate what was the result of these 10 episodes of Fed fairly extreme balance sheet expansion over the years from um, mean reversion. Having said that, my view is that Fed intervention improves median outcomes. It does. If they throw enough money in, let's say if they expand by 30 or 40%, it is very likely that at least in the medium term, asset prices will be supported by that. But there's no guarantee. I think it may cover the belly of the distribution, but it does not cover the tail. And as I said before, do you really want to be sitting on a position that's 25% down in a month, wondering whether the Fed puts coming into play? That's no way to run a business. That's no way to run a portfolio. You have to have some way to take into account psychological damage that will be done to your decision making if the Fed put is looking a bit dicey. You don't want to have positions on that can suddenly get really dicey. And now you're praying that this belief that you had is super solid, is rock solid. You just don't know. I think that's the way, way of putting it, that emotionality or what we referred to earlier is like time and speed of markets, right? Like the, in March of 2020, the Fed allegedly came in at the fastest they ever have, but you were down 36% before that. So what were your, you people forget their emotions mid-month in March. If you had no protection on, you were, you, you rapidly went down 36%. And I'm not sure how uh, confident you were in the Fed put at that point. So it's, it's, it's part of that. What's the timing mechanism there, especially if we have more fragility in markets. I want to go back to this block of whales that you were kind of talking about. And I'll put it under the uh, the heading of, of volatility targeting, right? And if Niels and, and Jerry and Moritz will forgive us for a second, and also my risk parity friends will forgive us for a second, I'm going to kind of straw man this idea of vol targeting. There's a lot of trend following funds that are trying to vol target their positions. And that's how they, on an ongoing basis, not just on putting on the positions with the ATR, but actually vol targeting to have a, a lower volatility profile. And then there's forms of risk parity that are absolutely vol targeting at a portfolio level. But what that happens is if, if vol picks up, you have a cascade of liquidations where they have to deleverage their books. And so how do you think about those blocks of traders and those positionings of, of these volatility targeting style uh, funds or strategies? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, one, one thing that's interesting is that there was probably a good reason for doing it at first. So many trend followers scale as one divided by volatility or one divided by realized variance, whatever. Let's say one divided by volatility. So the more volatile an asset gets, the more conservative they are in the dollar allocation to the asset, to the contract. Now that's good from one perspective, because one way to think about trend following is kind of like an electrical engineer might. There's a signal and there's noise. So if the noise has gone up, which is expressed as volatility, you want to do a little bit less because your signal to noise ratio has gone down. But there's a danger in that, which is that if equities, let's say, are selling off explosively and volatility is picking up, 
you won't capture as much as you would have back in the day before you did it this way, because you'll be scaling down the position as a function of rising vol. And so your exposure to equities goes down in that paradigm. It's not so bad for trend followers because trend followers will still make money on the short side, significant money. It's worse for volatility control funds, which trade a blend or which hold a blend of the S&P 500, let's say, and cash. Because if the volatility of the S&P 500 goes up, they are forced sellers of the index at an even more aggressive rate than the portfolio insurance guys of the 1980s were because volatility tends to go up more aggressively than price goes down. Now, there is a mitigating factor there, which is that vol control funds tend to use very long look-back windows when uh, measuring volatility. So maybe they don't jerk in and out as quickly as I'm implying, but they are reactive in terms of the way they manage risk. And that can have a systematic effect on markets. Absolutely. Nomura has like kind of a, a vanilla way of looking at, you know, maybe trend following positioning or vol targeting fund positioning or risk parity positioning. How do you think about assessing where those inflection points are with those type of funds? Or is it just about at this level of vol, I'm going to see a deleveraging of their books? Well, in, in market tremors, one thing I said in the end, it's kind of a throwaway comment, but I think it's important now that I think about it, is a good way to, do, to deal with this as an independent investor, if you can, is to build your own DIY models that you think are representative of what the large systematic programs are doing. You don't need any alpha in the model. It could be a bare bones version where you try and pick the average or typical signals that a volatility control fund uses, that a risk parity fund uses, that a, trend follow, a long-term trend following fund uses, parameterize them so that you generate some returns that look like the historical returns of the indices, let's say. And from that, you should yourself be able to say what the pressure points are in the market. You know, like one thing that people used to talk about a lot was the Iron Cross or the Hindenburg Cross. I forget, maybe I'm garbling this, but I think if the 50-day moving average crosses through from above the 200-day moving average, that's a bear market. That's a, a warning that a bear market could be impending. I think that's called the Hindenburg Cross or something. And I know Niels's audience will know more about this than I do, but why does that actually work okay? It's because perhaps many momentum-based traders, maybe not CTAs, but longer-term trend followers on the institutional side use similar sorts of signals. So if it does have merit, it's not because of the magic of 50, 200 days, but because other people are using similar signals and they start selling at those points. So it's not an arbiter of value, it's an indicator of positioning. And I think that's the key point there. So I think that's what I would advise people to do, either seek other people's advice on this or outsource it, or if you have the skills, build your own basic models yourself. And don't use them to generate alpha necessarily, but use them to identify where the pressure points in the market may be, where positioning risk is highest. And use your own mind to do it, don't you? Don't, Nomura does it really well, mind you, I think. But people should judge for themselves, test it themselves. And uh, that's, that's the sort of stuff I do myself. I do have a trend-following system that kind of I use as a baseline for positioning more than as a way to initiate positions myself. So it's kind of a way to uncover where people might be sellers. 
Yeah. And I think it's hopefully it's clear to people that we're not disparaging any sort of strategy or whatever. What we're talking about, there's a lot of nuance and there's trade-offs to every form of strategy. And to maybe extend a metaphor, I think about vol targeting funds that have to delever into a sell-off is they're running out of the store when everything's on sale. And if you're somebody that actually holds an inventory of those structurally negatively correlated puts, you're building a bunch of cash. So then you can go strolling back into that store while everybody's running out and you're buying up all that inventory on sale, right? Because you're the only one with kind of cash left. So it gives you a, a counter cyclical position. And maybe I, I maybe mixed too many metaphors in that one. No, I love that. Uh, yeah, exactly. We're not bashing any strategy. Every strategy has its strengths and, strengths and weaknesses. And knowing what those strengths and weaknesses are is the significant thing. And I think um, without being presumptuous, that's exactly what you do in the various strategies that you run, where you're mixing these various sources of alpha and convexity in a way that hasn't been done very much over the years in more conservative traditional portfolios. And I think it's a big step forward for many investors to have access to these programs. I think Christopher Cole has been very instrumental in highlighting some of the ways to uh, mix different types of strategies. I think uh, Corey Hofstein has done some good work there. There's a good, there's a good collection of people who have really kicked the ball down the field on this, on this uh, topic. So um, I'd like to pass it back to you on that. Front. <laughs> well, fortunately, I'm not in the hot seat. You are. So I want to get to the last uh, oh, okay. one of your whales that we talk about positioning whales is ETFs. And I think you have a very nuanced view of ETFs. So explain what, what, how you think about ETFs and that kind of whale positioning. I'm not really an ETF expert. I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, maybe I know a lot about it now, but I was worried that there were two problems with ETFs. One was on the liquidity side and the other was on the way the ETFs, certain ETFs were designed. So let me start with the liquidity side. Bond ETFs or high yield ETFs, you know, various types, they try and perform an alchemy. They try and convert an illiquid pool of corporate bonds that don't trade very well through the dealer network into something that tra trades like a stock, like a share. And I felt that there was a real problem in this because there was a feedback loop where stocks have a price impact function. And if you go back over time, you can go to the NASDAQ website and figure out how many times a stock went limit up or limit down in the NYSE or across the major exchanges over time, they give you that data. And it's pretty often, you know, there were many thousand incidences of a limit up or limit down event in March, 2020 alone. There were probably 500 plus in December, 2018, which wasn't a horrible month. It was a bad month, but not horrible. And so you see many stocks going limit up and limit down. And so they have these free fall moves or these melt ups. And once you're in the ETF stage, if you're say a high yield corporate bond ETF, and you have various entities, various algorithms trading you in relation to other ET other stocks or other ETFs, the odds of a flash crash are not that small. And as soon as you have that, then the whole system is broke. It's all broken because I know that economists love to talk about incentive schemes, but incentive schemes don't always work. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that there's a, a corporate bond ETF trading at 100. It goes into a flash crash. So the price impact function is driven by what other stocks in the, in the US are doing or some connect combination of other stocks. So it goes from 100 to 95. Now, in theory, there's an arbitrage mechanism. There's a middleman, which consists of dealers nominated by the ETF provider, provider who are 
in theory, incentivized to go in, buy that stock at 95 in size, take delivery on the bonds underpinning the index, and sell those bonds into the market at a profit. Therein lies the rub. If they try and buy shares to get that ETF any, anywhere close to 100, the, the quantity of bonds that they would have to digest for a decent-sized ETF would be the market. There would be no market for it. And what we've seen is that dealers, bond dealers nowadays, increasingly act as agents. They don't like to take principal risk. This is all Dodd-Frank, post-Dodd-Frank related. So they'll need to find a buyer pretty quickly, and they don't want to hold on to positions. So if a $300 billion sell order for a diversified pool of bonds came into the market, the market could not digest it. It would be almost better if a single bond issue came in at decent size, where a distressed buyer who'd done the research on the bond might be willing to step in at a deep discount. So there's effectively no arbitrage. So that incentive system breaks down because the dealers are not forced to act as arbitrageurs. They are, in theory, induced to do so in the pursuit of a quick profit, a quick relative value profit. But if things get too dicey, they're not going to step in. They just stop playing. And that creates a, a break or a fracture in the ETF and it's done and dusted unless someone steps in like the Fed and goes out and buys corporate bond ETFs, investment grade or otherwise. So that facility had a big impact on the corporate bond market. If that hadn't come into play, many of these ETFs would have stopped functioning. So that's one issue with the ETF complex where the dominant agents or the big players, the whales or the dealers who can step in but don't have to and the providers. So uh, that's one. The other one is badly designed ETFs. I used to run a, a, an admittedly small sub-portfolio of short positions in badly run ETFs. And uh, one of them is kind of the leverage one. You know, leverage for an ETF is kind of dicey. For an ETN or an ETF is dicey because the leverage has to be maintained at a constant level. So a two-to-one levered ETF, levered long ETF, has to sell every day that the reference index goes down and buy it every day it goes up. That can have innocuous problems associated with it. I'll give you one case. Let's say that the underlying index mean reverts over daily horizons. And the ETF is doing the worst possible thing. They're adding to winners and taking out of losers. And the index is mean reverting, so you get persistent underperformance. But things can get worse if you start goosing up the returns of something that's already pretty volatile. And the VIX was a classic case in point with the short ETFs, where they became so big that, with the short ETN, sorry, where they became so big that if the dealers had replicated, if the flow desks supporting those ETNs had replicated the reference index exactly, they would have owned a huge percentage of the open interest across all contracts in the VIX, and the rebalancing requirements would basically break the market. And everyone knew what the replication scheme was because the benchmark index is publicized. Everyone knows what it is. You can read about it in the prospectus. And this goes back to the problem of being too big and too obvious in your behavior. If you're big and you have a prospectus which is legally binding and you say, I'm going to do X in the prospectus, you have to do X. And then if you do do X, you know that people will try and uh, trade ahead of you and that you're going to have a huge impact that will compromise the investors in your strategy. 
And so I've taken some pot shots at ETFs and ETNs. I, I don't wish to uh, bash them again. We're all in the business of trying to create new ideas and scale them. All of us are in that business. It's easy for me to stand on the outside and say that the world is broken. I do think a lot of things in the marketplace are broken. I think the passive revolution is a bit too strong. I think a lot of the products available are too obvious in their design features or too coordinated and create fragility in the market system. And that's really what I'm banging on about. Not so much the evil intentions of the, the, the quants trying to design these rules with the junior quants trying to design these rules, but the way that the excessive coordination of these rules can break the system. If, if we all had the same risk system, Jason Bach and I and Niels and everyone used exactly the same risk system, traded exactly in the same markets, the market would collapse. Because one day, assuming that our risk limits weren't too far away, one day we'd all be getting out, everyone. That would be it. There'd be no buyers. There'd be no two sides to the market. So we have to have some diversity in the system. Yeah, diversity of opinions is what creates a market. And hopefully we haven't scared the crap out of everybody. I just wanted, I appreciate you illuminating all the nuances that you have to think about with positioning if, if you're trying to create a long options book. And so that's, this is the difficulties we want, we wanted to illuminate. And what I always like to, to think about if somebody's an expert at their field is you have to ask them to explain it to you like you're five years old. And I appreciate all of our private conversations where I ask you to do that over and over and over again. And you're always able to do it. And then so part of that, too, is, you know, Market Tremors is going to be coming out. And I want to give another shout out to your, your co-author, Ash Bennington. That's also excellent at explaining things to like your five. But maybe this is going to be the final and toughest question. Do you have a publication date for Market Tremors? Oh, yeah. Uh, October 11th is the stated date. <laughs> yeah. but they haven't finalized it. So I'm not doing any more work on it. I've uh, edited all the stuff. It's in their hands. When it comes out, it'll come out. I'm excited to get it out there. I hope that at least the introduction, which was Ash had a very large impact on, will be a good hook and a good accessible way for people to get into this topic. But the topic is positioning risk. And the goal in all of this is to say, if I had to just really simplify it, I'd say diversification is great, but not only diversification of assets, but diversification of strategies, ideas, and approaches to generating leverage on the downside. That's really what's needed. And um, that's what we're trying to do, basically. We're trying to broaden the, the concept of diversification to include different types of structures and strategies that provide more reliable protection, even if correlation fails, if correlation doesn't do what you think it should do. So that's kind of the takeaway. Hari, I want to thank you again for coming on this special volatility series for Top Traders Unplugged. And with that, I'm going to hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Jason and Harry, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed listening to you guys take on the topic of volatility from so many different angles and break down some of the key actors in this space, as I'm sure all of our listeners will. And if you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, please make sure you go and follow Harry and Jason's work. As you can tell from today's conversations, there are many exciting facets to volatility and we look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continues. From Jason and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.